Oh, good morning again. And uh, to make Adam and David feel a little bit better, I have a timer running in front of me. Um, Because I'm still the record holder for the longest amount of talking. Uh, So I'm going to try to my very, very hardest to be respectful of every, all the other stuff we have going on this morning. Uh, if you were here last week or if you've been here with us at all, and if you haven't, I'm going to say it anyway, so I don't even know why I teed it up that way. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and we're working our way slowly through the Gospel of John, however long or short that takes. Um, it is currently the end of June, and we're only in chapter 4, so that should tell you about how long it's going to take. Uh, last week, uh, we started in on chapter 4. Uh, David really hit on the elements of, of living water and what things like baptism would have meant to Jews at this time. And the fact that, I mean, if you've been growing up kind of near this or if you're relatively new to Christianity, if you're kind of in the bubble, then you just see Jesus say weird things like, well, whenever he meets this woman at the well, hey, um, whoever drinks of this is going to be thirsty again, but I can give them living water. And she seems confused by that. And I mean, living water is a weird phrase, but we here as 21st century people in America who are mildly used to Christian things go, yeah, he's Jesus. He says stuff like that. It makes sense. Uh, Whenever really, for Jews, living water means running water. Like that's their colloquial term. It means like creeks and rivers and things like that. So for her, this is exceptionally weird. There's this well, this honored well that was built by Jacob, one of the big three patriarchs. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'll replace it with living water. And she's very confused because I don't know if you know this, parts of Israel are a desert. So water's hard to come by. And he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to, to her ears, she heard, I'm going to put a river here. And she's confused. And David helped clarify for us what that means and how Christ can be a constant satisfaction for you. But there's multiple elements to the story. That's why we're going to be talking about the woman at the well for a few weeks in a row, actually. Because uh, there are really like three huge distinct chunks that come from her story, probably even more than that. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is, is a very particular part of this. And it's in John 4. And we're going to start at about verse six, like 16 here. It says, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman to answer him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And this is a very interesting little exchange. Um, And there's this like three sentences in our... English translations, and there's a lot happening here, just on a social level, so much that basically the sermon is going to be about these three sentences. And if you all have heard this story before, you're probably vaguely familiar with the idea that Jews, like Jesus, uh, usually don't talk to Samaritans, like this woman. Uh, But there's a whole lot of oddities going on here. You know, you might have heard that she was here at a weird time of day. You usually don't go to the noon when the sun is high, or the well, whenever it's around noon to four, whenever the sun is super high, and it's really hot. You're going to go more in the mornings or in the evenings whenever it's cooled off, and people are going to go in groups because it's safer to go in groups out of town to go to the well. And she's coming by herself as a woman at the hottest portion of the day, which means she's clearly trying to avoid something or someone or maybe everybody. 
but there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot greater bitterness and, and things happening here that usually get, than what usually gets talked about in sermons that cover this. And so I don't, I don't know if you all know what Israel looks like. Joe, can you pull up the first map? If I tell you Israel, you're going to be thinking this. Because this is modern Israel. This is what it looks like right now. And like the weird little peanut-shaped thing right up there that's kind of cross-hatched. Now that's the West Bank. You're going to hear about that a lot in the news. And then the other one you hear about a lot in the news is the other little tiny strip right there. That's the Gaza Strip. That's the other one that you're going to hear about a lot in the news. But this is modern Israel. So if I say it, that's what you're thinking. Okay? But this is not what's always been there. Obviously. Because it was, you know, this has fluctuated a lot even in the last century. But it's incredibly different from what Jesus would have known as far as Israel goes. So what I'm going to show you is actually the amount of land on the next map that Abraham was promised by God. Like the actual borders he should have had. And uh, I don't have a laser pointer, uh, but there's a, like a little, little teeny tiny bit right there touching the water. That's modern Israel. And like this whole big chunk is what Abraham was actually promised. And that white little dot over there, where it says Ur, that is one of the oldest and most ancient modern, like what we call modern, meaning they have language and calendars and things like that, civilizations of the world. That's where Abram came from, more or less. And then he traveled all of that way. But he was promised by God all of this. And if you go to the next slide for me, Joe, whenever Israel finally comes out of Egypt and they start moving into the land at the end of Deuteronomy, you see them do these sort of preliminary land breakups. They know it's not the whole of the land, but they already start kind of parsing, parceling it out and divvying it out amongst the tribes. And this is kind of how they broke it up. So this is what would have more or less been there throughout the entirety of Judges. And the stories of judges are happening in these different little districts and territories. So some of those stories of judges all overlap or some of them might even be happening at the same time because it's telling you stories that are going on just generally in all of these tribes during that stretch of time. And then if you uh, go on to the next one, whenever David and Solomon come along, we have a slightly different looking map. And who knows, they'll eventually pull it up. But it's, they conquered a lot more land. And uh, can you actually go to the, a couple more over? There we go. Back one more. There it is. That's my fault. I told them it was an order and I got the order wrong. Whenever David and Solomon are reigning, this is what the official borders looked like. Now their social political influence stretched way farther than this. They had influence in more places. But this was their actual borders. And the little kind of straight green line you see there, that's where David stopped. And then the big, thick green line is where Solomon swooped in and finished some of the things his father had started as far as gaining territory. And then shortly after Solomon died, there's a civil war. And the country gets split in half. So if you go back one, there's a line straight through the middle of that territory that you just saw. Not that one. This is fun. Isn't this fun? I love it. There's, there's going to be a straight line. There we go. Through the middle of the territory. Not straight. It's a little crooked. Uh, but you see part of it says Israel and part of it says Judah. And that's because the bulk of the tribes rebelled against Solomon's heir. 
And they side with, they decide to take the country's name. And they become Israel up to the north. And their capital is now Samaria. And then the lower portion is the portion that stayed loyal to David's lineage. And that's Judah. And their capital is still at this time Jerusalem. And you can kind of see how this compares. The red line is how this compares to modern day Israel. Uh, But eventually over time, the Assyrians in the 700s are going to come and conquer that part of Israel. And then in the 500s, the Babylonians are going to come and conquer Judah. And then they're going to kind of get like hacky sacked around a little bit between whatever the global superpower is of the day being their dictator. And it ultimately comes under Rome's rule, comes out looking a little bit different. So if we'll go to the very last map. Looks like this. This is the Israel Jesus saw. And Jesus comes from the top portion up there where it says Galilee. Now Galilee even though it's kind of known as like the backwater part of the country, they're still relatively good, decent Jews. They're just country folk. Uh, Judah, down there, is still kind of like the seat of where everything is because Jerusalem is still there, their holy city. And then you'll notice this big chunk here in the middle. It's called Samaria because the whole chunk of that land took the name of Israel, or at least the northern Israel's capital. And so you might have heard that at this time it was common for Jews to wander around Samaria. Which you think is decently easy enough because it's a city. You'll bypass that. We bypass cities all the time. That's fine and all, but the whole region is Samaria. And in case you didn't know this, there are a whole lot of Jews that in Judea and Galilee that have to go back and forth. And because Samaria, and get this, these are the people that are responsible. They're not like casually, casually hateful towards these. It's not like some of the things you might hear about in the news where somebody is arbitrarily angry at somebody else for some sort of immutable characteristic or whatever. It's uh, these people look and talk and walk an awful lot like me. The problem is they literally caused a civil war, caused our entire nation to collapse, and then caused the kingdom to go into slavery because had the country not been severed in two, we might have been strong enough to stave off all these invaders, but we weren't, and it's their fault. That's what Judeans and Galileans think of Samarians. And they might not be entirely wrong. Causing a civil war and the collapse of your culture is kind of a big deal. And it might, might be a slightly good reason to be angry at somebody. You know, because I've seen how irrationally angry myself and other people can get when you get cut off coming out of a drive-thru. Uh, so, you know, the collapse of your culture is a decently okay thing to be upset about. So whenever Jesus comes in, and he's already kind of, I mean, he does a lot of things to weird out his disciples. That's pretty common place. But whenever he says... No, we're going to go through Samaria. They're probably thinking, "Mm, yeah, all right, maybe we'll kind of go along the edge. And he's like, no, we're going to go to like, I need to go to Samaria. Not just where the bad people are. I need to go to the capital of where the bad people are. And in case you didn't know that, on top of everything else, the Jews, these Jews still didn't even like Samarians, not just for that, but because they had a false temple that they worshipped at in Samaria. So on top of being a bunch of traitors, they have a false temple. And we can't be doing that. We can't associate with them. 
because they're geopolitical and religious traitors. So we just, we just don't touch them. We don't mess with them. We don't like them. We just avoid them. And that's an awful lot of, of, of hatred and dislike to have of something to avoid it with that much effort. Uh, I have only gotten very close one time because I hate toll roads enough that Joe and I nearly tried to concoct a route out of Texas where we didn't touch Oklahoma. And I don't hate toll roads another five hours worth of driving enough for that. Uh, Because this is the equivalent of more or less trying to bypass like the whole state of Rhode Island and then another half of Rhode Island. You're bypassing an entire geographical region because you're just trying to avoid people. And Jesus says, I'm going to go straight to the heart of this region because I have something I need to do there. He doesn't bother to clarify what that means. He just says, I have something to do there. And so they wind up here and he talks to this woman and he has this strange conversation with her about living water. And at the moment, the disciples are in town off getting supplies, which is normal. And he has this private conversation with her which I'm sure has all the weird connotations that you might expect, because on top of it being a Jewish person and a Samaritan person, it's the wrong time of day for anybody to be at this well. It's a man and a woman who don't know each other. He's a teacher. She's a totally different social class than him. There's a different race here. There's different religions at work. There's a whole lot of social and economic and just religious boundaries that Jesus is bypassing in this moment and a whole lot of hatred and bitterness and resentment for seemingly good reasons that she's confused that he's talking to him or that he's talking to her rather and whenever he offers her the living water he doesn't say okay here's the living water he asks her go get your husband Which in his day might be a pretty normal question, but here it's a very, very pointed question because she says, well, I don't have one. And he tells her, I know. Which is a weird thing for a stranger to tell you. If a stranger nowadays tells you that, like, call the cops, they know too much. Uh, But he says, I know. And then he gives her even more details and says, because you've, you've had a number of them, and the one you have, right, the person you're living with now isn't, isn't your husband. And for whatever reason, a lot of people, when they read this, they immediately associate it with like, oh, well, clearly she must have been an adulterous person. And maybe the Bible doesn't really say that. You know, her husband could have died. And then she could have had one Goel who also died. And then maybe there was another Goel. It's the system of where your husband's brother-in-law was supposed to take care of you like a husband. Once your husband died, if you were a widow. It was a way of making sure widows didn't become destitute in their society. And maybe she ran out of them. And then she had to marry. Maybe by that point she was too old to have any more kids and nobody wanted to marry her anymore. And she found something. Maybe he died. Maybe she was adulterous. I, I don't know. But she's currently living with whoever would give her a place to stay. And that comes with a whole lot of social baggage. So she's clearly trying to avoid people to avoid the stigma because she's living with somebody who's not her husband in a culture where you just don't do that. And suddenly this man says, I know that this isn't your husband. And she says, well, clearly you must be a prophet because you know this somehow. And then if we skip down to verse 25, 
It says this, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he does, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so if you've been tracking with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that there will be these points where any one of us who are normally up here in front of you preaching will say, hey, this is John trying to give you a hint that Jesus is God. He never just comes out and, and flat out says it to us in that plain of English, but he gets so stinking close to it that he might as well just be slapping you in the face with it. And some of them are him definitively saying, it, we just don't see it in plain English because some of it's very cultural. And she comes across somebody who seems to be a prophet, and the number one thing that she says about the Christ is he'll tell us everything. Like all truth, anything like that. And she suddenly meets this strange man who reveals to her the truth about her life. He doesn't seem to do it harshly or pointedly or judgmentally. He just tells her the truth. And then says to her that he's the Messiah. And so when the disciples come back, they marveled at what he was, they marveled that he was talking with this woman. But no, no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Nobody interrupted it. So the woman left, and she left her water jar, and then she went back into the town saying to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And if you'll remember a couple weeks back, whenever John very clearly points a straight line to Jesus knowing what was in the hearts of humanity, so now we see another very, very similar story to where a woman says the Messiah will tell us what's true. Because in here, she says, there's a bunch of religious squabbling happening between my people and your people. And she more or less tells him, I just want to know what's true. And then he tells her the truth about her life and where she's at. Not about everybody else's religious squabbling, but speaks into her life with truth. And suddenly this seems to be enough to convince her that this is the Messiah. Enough that she drops her water jars, the whole reason why she's out there at the hottest portion of the day, and she runs back to town in the heat without the water. And then just starts telling everybody, and tell, all the people who know her and dislike her because she's got a bad reputation, she just starts grabbing them all and telling them all, I think the Messiah is outside of town. And then Jesus walks into the most hated city by Jews and ministers to them for several days. It seems like, at least for this short portion of the interaction, for this little bit, that the main thing we see about Christ is that Jesus isn't here to just speak grand, general, vague, religious truths that you can carry with you or pick up whichever ones you please, whichever ones you like, whichever ones that suit you. He didn't bother to address the social political things happening between the two of them. He didn't bother to address the logistical squabbles. She did not give him a systematic theology before she came to be saved and she was not screened. He just went to her in love and just told her the truth about her and where she was at with God. And that was enough for her to see that this is clearly God. 
And Jesus approaches clearly not literally like this, but everybody the same way still now. And when when the Spirit is slowly wooing you, even if it doesn't happen, even if it doesn't take the first time, maybe it takes the second time or the third time or however many times it takes for the Spirit to finally get through our thick heads because I've got a particularly thick one so it took a while. Uh, that's the same way he approaches all of us. And that's all he's going to offer you is the truth about where you stand with God and about the truth that there is a chance for living water which meant purification for them and that you'll always be satisfied after it that you won't thirst again and Jesus isn't going to demand of you to be perfect in that moment whenever he called Matthew or Levi whichever gospel you're reading the Pharisees approach him and they're particularly upset why are you hanging out with bad people and in this the disciples probably said why are we going to Samaria and Jesus is not particularly concerned about our boundaries and our barriers and our problems with letting other people know the good news. Because he tells the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. I'm here for the sick. And then he ministers to them. And those people then followed him around for three years. So clearly he was giving them something that they needed. And he offers the same thing to everybody. And that's just the truth that with him there is purification and something that will eternally satisfy you. Because even in Psalms, David writes that God will satisfy you with good. And that's what restores you and, your ju- and rejuvenates you. Is when he satisfies you and makes you content with good. Might not be a rich person, you might not be the smartest person. You might be a Samaritan person with no money, no social reputation, no nothing whatsoever, and the worst possible candidate to be a preacher. And yet, he picked her out and said to her, I know you, and there is purification if you trust me. And she immediately starts ministering to her neighbors. And that's the same opportunity we have here. Now. Or Christ tells you, I know you, and I forgive you, and there is purification with me. That comes at the cost of following him. And when you follow him, he calls you to go spread the fact that there's a man here who is and knows the truth. That's it, in a nutshell. You can take it or leave it. I would recommend you take it. Because there's a lot of of freedom that comes with just knowing the truth. And you can speak the truth regardless of if you're smart or not smart. There's no polite way of saying that. (laughs) Or if you're rich or if you're poor, it doesn't matter. You're then also immediately equipped and called to go proclaim. Because I'm certain Jesus picked this woman knowing that she would probably, the moment she knew who she was, or she knew who he was, go and proclaim who he was to everybody she knew. So if you come to him, know that's also your calling too. It's not just for uh, people who occasionally get ordained or occasionally dress nice, even though it's hot. Uh, 
It's for everybody. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at or where you're being called from or if you are following and you're maybe not good at proclaiming. That's okay. Proclaim anyways. Because the Spirit will empower you. And maybe He's met you a few different times and you haven't heard just yet. But just lean in and listen. Just ask God to speak to you in truth. Because the Spirit protects truth. And it's the person of Christ. So maybe He's calling you to know Him. Awesome. Come grab me or Adam or David or Jimmy or whoever. We'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe if you just want to have more serious conversations about the best way to proclaim the gospel to people around you, we would love to help you walk through that process as well. But whatever God is calling you to do this morning, just like this woman, just be faithful and speak it because it's the truth. And that's all we've got. If the band doesn't mind coming up in the time of response, just do whatever business with God you need to. invite anybody who's able to rise. You can sit, you can pray, do whatever you need to do. But now is just the time to respond this morning.